I haven't gotten to meet you yet. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors and preachers here at The Trails. Uh, and uh, today we are kicking off the book of Jonah. That's what I've been doing for the last minute is trying to find the book of Jonah. If you're like me uh, and you're trying to find out where in the world is the book of Jonah, you can use your table of contents. Uh, it'll tell you exactly what page number it is on. Uh, or you can uh, turn kind of near the, the back end. So if you, if you get Matthew and then you just take a left, uh, a couple of books, you'll find it. That's probably the easiest way to tell you, unless you know where just Obadiah is just off the top of your head. But you probably don't. Uh, so um, I, I'm excited to be here with you. And, and today, beginning uh, kind of walking through the story, which is, I think, undoubtedly one of the best known stories in the Bible. In fact, if today is one of your very first times in church gatherings at all, you might even know something about this story, even just from being raised in Canada or around pop culture at all. But, but so, so you might know some details of the story, even if you grew up, uh, even like, like attending gatherings kind of like this. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to dive in. But as I was thinking about it, as we're getting started, if we're going to do if we're gonna do a simple word association, uh, even before we begin our study, like if I was going to pull you aside last week and say, hey, we're about to go through the word or the book Jonah. And you, I said, you can only give me one word back. What would you yell back at me? If I said Jonah, you'd say, well, yeah, some of you. Uh, some of you whale, some of you fish, uh, depending on, depending on your growing up and how familiar you are. But if all you're familiar with is VeggieTales, you would have said whale, uh, for sure. Um, and and you, you'd say, well, this, this is a, a story about a fish, a giant fish swallowing a dude, right? That's, that's what the story is all about. I mean, that's at least what VeggieTales, uh, I, I watched that Emmy award-winning film, <laughs> it's not, uh, with my kids this week. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what it said. It was all about, it's all about a fish. But, but as, as I said, but the part about the fish is just a very small part of the book. E- even, even a once over through the book, you can see this isn't really a story about a fish at all. Rather, what we understand is, firstly, that the book of Jonah is primarily, firstly, about God. That's who the story is primarily about. It is about God's character and God's nature. God is the one who pursues both Jonah and the Gentiles out of mercy and compassion and pity. And it's a story that reveals the very heart of God. Not only that, but also correctly, it is also a story about Jonah. God and Jonah, they are the two main characters. And when we see Jonah, what we see about him is that it's his sin and specifically God's patience extended towards him, right? His rebellion and then second chances to go and do what he should have done the first time. You know what I mean? To go to the Ninevites and to preach to them. And, and we also learn, we also learn that the Ninevites are those who, who don't deserve God's mercy and who couldn't earn it. And yet Jonah is to go to them. So this whole story demonstrates Jonah just wrestling with the character, nature, and the plans and purposes of God, who is way more merciful and way more compassionate than our boy Jonah. So it's a story about, about God, about Jonah, this real life prophet who lived somewhere between 790 to 750 BC as we see him mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14. So it's a real story about a real man who's really wrestling with God's call on his life. And then simultaneously, just like with the book of Hosea, the book of Jonah is also a story about Israel. It's one they identified with as his chosen people, so much so that every year as Israel celebrates Yom Kippur, that yearly festival where they remember the day of atonement, right? The, the sheep in their place, one in the place of another, during that, that time, there's a 25-hour fast. There's no eating. There's no drinking. There's no cleaning. There's no doing almost anything. But one of the things they should do as God's people, as they get ready to approach the Lord and make sacrifices for their sin, is they are to read and meditate on this book, the book of Jonah. This, this story that has these 
great huge themes of sin and grace and redemption and calling and why, we might ask, why Jonah? Well, there's probably more reasons than these, but I'm going to give you four real quick that I found in my study this past week. So four reasons why Jews read this during Yom Kippur. So the book reminds them, firstly, of God's infinite mercy, right? How God is merciful to Jonah when he is faithless to God. And look at how God pursues Jonah with a steadfast love. God's infinite mercy. Secondly, the book is a reminder of how Nineveh responds to news of God's judgment, how they repent of their sin. Spoiler alert, if you're newer to the book. But but that's a model for Jews as they approach the Day of Atonement. They too may receive pardon if they repent from their sin. Thirdly, the book also serves as a reminder that the entire world and all of its natural forces are in God's hands. It's like that story we used to sing when we were little. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. Like, All things are in his hands, everything. And and it rehearses that that song that we knew that our godly forefathers taught us. And and there's nothing outside of God's sovereign control. And then finally, fourthly, as Jonah is saved from the belly of the fish, there's a reminder that they too can be saved. So it's a story about God, about Jonah, about Israel. And also, if you are a Christian, it is a story about you. It's a story of God's grace being extended to you as Gentiles, those who are enemies of God and going your own way throughout the world without God, and without hope. And yet when you heard the bad news of the Bible, God's oncoming judgment against your sin, and you felt the weight of sin, knowing that you deserved God's judgment because we've rebelled and sinned against him. And then when you heard the good news of the Bible, how God the Son laid humanity alongside of divinity to live the perfect spotless life that you ought to have lived and then suffered the death you deserve to die so that Jesus atoned for our sin, him in our place, one in the place of another As our true and better sacrifice, he faced the judgment, the wrath of the Father that should have been laid upon you, brother and sister. It should have been placed on you for all of eternity future, but Jesus stood in your place for your sin. He died and rose from the dead that you could be justified, declared not guilty in the courtroom of heaven. And so when we heard that that offer to come and repent and believe upon Jesus as our God, King, and Savior, we gave our lives to Jesus and experienced God's forgiveness from our sins as we were grafted into God's family through grace and faith in Jesus alone. So it's a story about God and about Jonah, about Israel, about us. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, it's also a story about you. It's an offer to you who aren't Christians. Those of you who are kicking the tires on Christianity, maybe you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus because the Bible explains that you are still under God's judgment for your sin. And so the book of Jonah teaches you of God's compassion and heart towards you, that he longs for you to not perish, but to be saved from judgment and to be forgiven. So much so that Jesus came and did exactly what he did. And then God sent people into your life who opened up their mouths and shared with you the bad news of the Bible and the good news of the Bible. And the spirit gave you faith to believe what they were saying is true. And God saved you. And so if you're here exploring Jesus, you're not a Christian. The book of Jonah displays God's oncoming judgment against your sin, but also his compassion and love for you. That God has made a way that you could be forgiven of your sin if you would but come and trust and believe upon Jesus. And so, so the book of Jonah is beautiful and complex. It is wonderful and incredibly simple. If you're, if you're newer around the trails as well, you might think that we might not be talking about Jesus a whole lot in our study through Jonah. I mean, Jesus isn't even mentioned in the book, but if you think that, you would be wrong. 
very wrong. Because this book, what it does is it prepares our hearts for Jesus and points to Jesus in so many ways. In fact, it was Jesus who taught in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49, that all of the Old Testament scriptures, they are fulfilled in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. That the Old Testament books, yes, even Jonah, prepares us for how Jesus would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead so that repentance of sins might be preached and proclaimed to all nations, like Nineveh. And so even further, when talking about his own death, do you remember that Jesus, he pointed back to this story. Do you remember Matthew chapter 12, verse 40? This is what Jesus said. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so we'll see that this story whispers the name of Jesus and reminds us of the gospel chapter after chapter. So our aim over the next couple of weeks is to help us learn and love this book even more so that from this study onwards, when we think of the book of Jonah, we won't just shout out, whale, we would shout out redemption, Jonah, grace, Jonah, mercy, not Jonah, fish, whale. I gotcha. You didn't even know it was coming. That's my aim. So we might, we might learn these things. So, so let's pray. And then we're going to dive into the, to the book together and begin unpacking chapter one and see the God who pursues. So let's pray. So Father, I, oh, I pray that you would, would begin to use your word to do its work in us as your people. That you would speak in and through it. We thank you for your word that it is infallible and inerrant and inspired and trustworthy and sufficient and profitable. And I, I thank you for the way that Jonah chapter one is so profitable in our lives. So I pray that as we're walking through that you would just give us all eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to comprehend that we may even look at this chapter and leave worshiping and praising Jesus for what he has done in our lives. So we love you and we ask that in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So let's dive in. We're going to look at verses one and two. Let's read those together. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, in these two verses, what we quickly see is the table is set for us to understand a great deal about the book. So firstly, the book starts with those words, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And so simply by introducing us into the story, it'd be kind of like if I were to stand up here and say, once upon a time, something happened. That, that's kind of what we're entered into right here. Now, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We're like, oh, we're in the story. Here we go. And that expression, the word of the Lord, if you remember, if you remember your Old Testament, that is a common one, right? In the Old Testament, you see it everywhere. As the prophets of God, the spokesmen of God are, are usually given in two broad categories, these words of the Lord. Firstly, they are corrective words that are given to Israel, right? Like the main jobs of the prophet is to say to Israel, quit doing what you're doing. Stop it. You're doing this, quit it. It's like, it's like the proverbial dad. The prophet is just the dad showing up, stop doing what you're doing. Uh, that, that, that's, that's what huge part of their, their job. And then secondly, the word of the Lord comes in a future prophetic way. Sometimes these come at the exact same time, right? Like repent from doing this or else this really terrible thing will happen to you. Or also what we see happen in the Old Testament is that there is a nation that is coming. You can be sure, prepare yourself. It doesn't matter what you do. They will come and you are going into captivity. So get yourselves ready, boys. 
So, so it's kind of the two broad brushstrokes of how we see the word of the Lord coming in the Old Testament. So this phrase, the word of the Lord, is a common rhythm that we read all the way around. So what will happen is you usually hear, you usually hear this kind of phrase, uh, the word of the Lord came to this person. And then, and then what is the next thing that we usually say or usually hear? Thus says the Lord. Like the prophet stands up, thus says the Lord. Where do they claim to me? Ah, thus says the Lord. That's usually how it goes. And that's kind of how this book starts, the very part, beginning of it, which makes sense, right? In the minor prophets, we would expect some of this. And so immediately when we start reading, we're brought into the storyline of the word of, of the Lord coming to this man named Jonah, the son of Amittai. And as we mentioned, Jonah was a real historical person who really did live. He wasn't a fictitious person. Rather, he's one of the prophets of God. We see his name actually come up in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 28. I've got chapter or verse 25 on the screen for you. And there we learn that this Jonah, or part of it at least, where we see Jonah is the son of Amittai, that he lived and prophesied at least one other time, somewhere between 790 and 750 BC under King Jeroboam II. But what we don't know from looking at 2 Kings and looking at the book of Jonah, what we don't know is whether the events that transpired in 2 Kings 14 happened before or after the book of Jonah. We have no idea. There's a lot of people that take a lot of guesses, but, but we don't know. These are the only two mentions of Jonah, son of Amittai, in God's word, who is a prophet. So anything else is conjecture. So we might wonder, well, then is the book of Jonah the very first time that Jonah is ever receiving the word from the Lord? Is this his very first assignment? If so, that's a tough one, man. Or, or is it his second? Or is it his 40th? We have no clue. But we do know that the word of the Lord came to this man named Jonah, and we see he's given a very specific task, specific orders given to him by God. Again, God isn't asking Jonah of his input. Jonah, would you like to do something for me? No, God shows up, gives orders, shows up. Here are your marching orders, Jonah, get to it. And so in those marching orders, we see that there are three imperative verbs or commands that God gives to Jonah. You can notice them with me. Firstly, he says, arise, right? Which carries some urgency. Right, kind of like when you're encouraging your friends to not be late for a movie, right? Like, get in the car, hurry quick. Did you get the popcorn? You have to go to the bathroom. Or when you're with your children, try and get them into the car. This is urgency. Get in the car. Then secondly, the second imperative is the word go. And that's often how God speaks, right? He says, arise and go. We see that in Jeremiah 13, Ezekiel 3, Micah 2. But, but go where? Well, Nineveh. Now, now, what do we know about Nineveh? Well, I'm going to show you this map geographically. Look at that little map. It was the capital city of a nation called Assyria. It's about 500 miles north and east of Israel, and it is modern-day Mosul, Iraq. And, and the first time that this city is ever mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 10, where we learn that it was founded by a guy named Nimrod. So if you're pregnant and you're looking for a good name, Nimrod. Nimrod. It's a gold mine of a name, isn't it? You probably don't think so, but that's only because of a misunderstanding of a Bugs Bunny cartoon in the 1950s that looked at Elmer Fudd, and Elmer Fudd was a terrible hunter, and Bugs Bunny goes, something's like, yeah, Nimrod. And so we're like, oh, Nimrod's a bad thing. Not originally. Nimrod was awesome, uh, but Bugs Bunny ruined it for you, so sorry. Um, but it was founded by a guy named Nimrod. He, he is the grandson of Noah. We read in Genesis chapter 10, he was a great hunter, which more than likely, as most scholars would agree, refer not to his ability to kill wildlife, though he was probably really great at that, but rather referred to his warrior nature and his skill in battle. And the Ninevites, those in the city that he founded, they followed suit. They were a city of brawlers. And we see from Jonah chapter one that they were also evil. 
right? See, see, their evil has come up before the Lord. Historically, we can also confirm that this is very accurate as well. There are stories, you can Google them later. I won't tell them to you because of children present and they are grotesque. But, but there are, uh, their tactics in warfare are some of the gruesome things, to say the least, that you could possibly imagine doing to another person. And we know that they had already fought with Israel about three times. And, and so they were enemies of Israel, which conversely meant that they were also enemies of God. Which is fascinating because here Jonah's task is to arise and go to this city, this evil city. And the third command is he is to call out against it because their evil has come up before the Lord, meaning that it is a cause of concern to the Lord, which is interesting that God, God sees their evil and he cares about it. So Jonah is commanded, arise, go and call out against them. Make their evil known. Let them know of the oncoming judgment of God, which might immediately sound like a dream job if you hate these people. You know what I mean? If you hate them, they hate God, they hate you, they're gruesome, brutal warriors. All you want is their death and destruction. God comes to you and says, go call out upon them that I'm gonna destroy them and bring judgment. Your immediate response would be, praise the Lord. I'll take that job. That sounds, that sounds like a great job. So, so why is Jonah in verse three then reluctant to deliver this message if all God has told him here is preach judgment against them? I mean, why go to Nineveh in the first place and make their oncoming judgment known? I mean, no prophet of God has ever been told to go to a foreign nation and to tell them of God's oncoming judgment against them. So why now? Why Nineveh? See, it was, it was really common for prophets to pronounce woes against foreign nations. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. But to go to them and to preach to them, this is, this is not normal. This is an unusual call. I mean, God raised up prophets to tell his own people about the coming of judgment so that they might repent and not face judgment, which then begins to make us wonder at the beginning of the book, is that what God is doing here? Is God giving this evil pagan nation the opportunity to repent from their sin and be forgiven? And is this what Jonah expects when he hears the call from God actually to go and preach against the city of Nineveh so that his dream job actually turned out to be not a dream job at all? How does Jonah respond to that? Well, let's look at verse three. See, but... And circle that word in your Bibles. In the next few sentences, you're going to see the word but come up often. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. For again, this is also unprecedented. I mean, a prophet of the Lord hearing from God and deciding that he would arise and go. But rather than do what God commanded him to do, he decided to flee. <laughs> this is wild. And notice what he's trying to flee from, the presence of the Lord. In fact, in verse three, it's mentioned twice. Thus his motivation is he wants to flee from the very presence of God. Now this is fascinating because he is a Hebrew. Not only that, but he is a prophet. He knows he cannot flee from the presence of the Lord. Why? The Lord is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time, at all places. There's nowhere that he is not. He is everywhere. It's 
procrastinating. He knows he can't run away from the presence of the Lord, and, and yet he tries to. And yet, if we even just pause for a moment, in our rebellion against God, isn't it true that our thoughts and actions also never make any sense? The things that we know to be true, we just, it's like we just do the opposite. I mean, we do nonsensical things, and we convince ourselves of nonsense when we want to rebel against what God is calling us to do. And that's what Jonah is doing here. He tries to flee from the presence of God. And it's simply interesting to note right here as well that the author of the book, which we aren't quite sure who this is, but they don't explain why Jonah rebels against God and heads towards Tarshish. We aren't told that until chapter 4. In fact, here we aren't told anything other than the shocking news that he gets up and heads in the opposite direction, rebelling against God. In fact, in fact, the author, as I said, all the way until chapter four, lets us know what Jonah was thinking and finally answers the question of why did he even run from God in the first place to go to Tarshish? And I think that's intentional by the author. He wants you to wait until the end of the book. Because as we begin to reflect theologically on this story, about the compassion of God for his enemies, and then begin to think about our own lives, it ought to cause us to examine the own state of our hearts before God. Like if this kind of call of God came to you, right? Like if God were to send you to your enemies to share the gospel to them, what would you do? You know, th those people that you think deserve the judgment of God to be poured out upon them because you hate them? People having parades this weekend? People who want to do story times with children? Certain politicians? Are there those that you would rather see the judgment of God come upon them than see their salvation? See how much like Jonah you are? See, the repetition of vocabulary in verse three is, is fascinating and it's emphatic. Like if you just read it, you're like, why is he saying all these things like two or three times in a row? Like, like did you notice the word down is used twice in verse three? Right? Jonah goes down to Joppa and then down onto a ship. And it's used in contrast, isn't it, to how the sin of Nineveh does what to the Lord? up to the Lord, he goes down to Joppa and then down into a ship. There's a contrast here, leading many to note that Jonah's rebellion against God leads him in this downward trajectory throughout this chapter and into the next, which we will just keep seeing. And so it's interesting. And then, and then twice what we're told is that he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And then three times that he is headed towards Tarshish. I mean, this verse is screaming at us, isn't it? Jonah is not going to go where the Lord has commanded him to go. And you can see on this next map right here what this would have looked like. So we remember where Israel and Nineveh are, and we can also see where Tarshish is. So instead of heading north and east towards Nineveh, Jonah heads as far west as he can possibly go. And we know from 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 21, that it would take anywhere from a year to 18 months to travel there. It was basically the end of the earth in their estimation. So much so that Isaiah 66, 19, Nineveh is mentioned as being part of the far coastlands who have not heard of the fame nor seen the glory of God. 
Thus, in Jonah's mind, he's going as far away from God and God's call on his life as he possibly could get. He is running not just away, not just far, far away, but far, 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 far away. And, and we know his sin was costly. Sin is always costly. And notice Jonah paid the fare and went down into the boat, leading some to simply note how God's people can always find a boat. We can always scrape up the money and pay the fare to run away from God. See, friends, in this story could have ended right here. We could have gotten three sentences in. God could have let Jonah go or brought judgment on him and killed him immediately. But rather, what we see unfold is the rest of this chapter and four other ones as God pursues Jonah with his persistent love. Even, even this unfaithful prophet who deserves judgment, God pursues him. So while Jonah runs away from God, God does not let Jonah go. Rather, what does he do? He goes after him. And as God, he has unlimited resources. Like, he owns everything. And he employs some of them. And, and we begin to see that unfurl as verse four rushes in to let us know with great certainty that God hasn't given up to him. We read again. Notice the first word. But, there it is again. But, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so the ship threatened to break up. Isn't that verse amazing? That, that God, instead of raising up another prophet, he pursues Jonah by hurling. It's like God was just like, like a baseball, just hurled it, a great wind upon the sea so that a mighty tempest comes after him. And not only is the wind conspiring against Jonah in obedience to God's command, but also notice that the ship itself is threatening to break apart. Thus, we see this personification of the ship itself desiring to just break apart and bring Jonah down into the judgmental waters of God. It's like, it's like the wind, the waves, the ship, they're all conspiring together under the sovereign hand of God, doing his bidding and accomplishing his purposes as he pursues his prophet. It's wild. And then in verse five, lest we forget that there are others here that are impacted by Jonah's sin, we're reminded that the ship that, that he's on went down. It was also full of other mariners or sailors, other people that are bound for Tarshish. So the camera lens kind of zooms out a bit and we get a better picture of the situation at hand, right? So, so girls, God hurls the storm on the sea and the ship is threatening to break up. And then we, we pan over and we see it's the sailors who see all this is happening. They watch the storm roll in. It gets so bad that we read in verse five, then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, this is astounding, isn't it? We, we read that Jonah's sin isn't just affecting him, but it's affecting those around him. And the storm is, is so violent. And the ship is trying to break apart to the degree that it makes these men, who, by the way, spend their entire lives on board of ships, it makes them afraid. Now, you know that a storm like that would be a big deal. Like if I'm out in a little John boat or a little dinghy and any kind of storm comes out, I'm freaking out, right? It's not, 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 not playing that game, right? I watched how some of you drive during winter when there's a snowstorm. I'm like, I don't want to be in your car, man. Like I'm just pulling over and waiting, you know what I mean? And this kind of, but these guys, they, they're so used to it. It's just, a, it's just a normal thing to be on a ship and have a storm come in, but, but there's something different about this storm. Something is off about it. It's not a normal storm. So they're convinced that there has to be some kind of spiritual element to it, right? They're afraid. And so what do they start doing is they start praying. 
start crying out to their individual gods, right? So depending on which country or which area they were from, you'd have a, a god associated maybe with your family or your city. If you, if you think back, in a lot of even polytheistic uh, cultures today, even right here in Canada, if you wanted to see your crops protected or you want to get pregnant or you don't want to have danger on the sea or maybe you want to fall in love, then you'd sacrifice to various gods. But the pagan gods are a fickle bunch. So if you forgot to make sacrifices or make the right vows, then it was believed that they would attack you within their realm of oversight. And so these men, they see the mighty tempest they're in and the state of the ship, and they recognize that this is no ordinary storm. So they begin praying, crying out to their gods, and they begin hurling out cargo. That's the same word that we read a moment ago, by the way, that God, God hurled the storm. These men are hurling their cargo, which, by the way, is a loss of cargo equals a loss of income for these men. Thus, Jonah paid the fare. His sin was costly, but his sin also cost these men. We don't know how much, but they're going on a year to 18-month-long journey. So you can imagine something valuable. So this is a big deal. These guys are afraid. And then in, in, in this scene, in my mind, it kind of looks like, like, I just watched those movies where there's like, there's like the little boat, and then there's like the huge waves that keep coming forward. And then there's that point in the movie where like, there's like the really big, big, big wave. And you're like, oh man, they're just toast. Like it's just gonna kill them. So we're not to the really, really big, 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 huge wave where they're just gonna die yet. But you're at the part where you're like, I think that wave is gonna kill them. Nope, I think that wave is gonna kill them. And the waves keep getting bigger, bigger, and bigger. That's kind of where we're at right now. These guys are soaked. These seasoned sailors are terrified. They're believing they are moments away from death which then makes the second part of verse five seem really strange. We read, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the, of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So we see another surprising twist and we see this downward trajectory again, right? Jonah had gone down to Joppa, down to the ship. Now he's gone down into the inner part of the ship which is usually vocabulary that we see in the Old Testament to talk about descending actually into death, highlighting there's a physical and a spiritual dynamic to his sleeping. Not only that, but it's also interesting to note that the phrase here that Jonah had laid down and fallen fast asleep is the exact same vocabulary that we see elsewhere in the Old Testament to talk about how there were certain men that fell asleep and then they were about to have a uh, revelation from God. So for example, Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, or Daniel in Daniel chapter eight, verse 18. So the sage is now set in the book of Jonah for Jonah to wake up then and to encounter God. And then surprisingly, it's not God in verse who wakes him up, but rather the captain of the ship. But he says something strikingly similar to what God had already told Jonah, which would have been eerie. So he comes to Jonah and he says, verse six, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Which is an interesting thing to say. Arise, call out. It's the first and the third command that God had already given in this book which again brings a bit of irony in the story. I mean, a pagan ship captain wakes Jonah up and commands him to arise and pray. And that kind of little ironic, Jonah's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. You're getting some sleep, some shut eye. A pagan ship captain wakes you up and screams at you that you need to go pray. You might be like, hmm, maybe I should go pray. That's crazy. Now, at this moment, the ship captain doesn't know who Jonah is, but he also doesn't care. This is like a Hail Mary for the captain, getting everyone to pray to whatever God they worship. 
And they cover all the bases. That's what they want to make sure. Whatever God we have offended. It'd be like praying to Allah and Vishnu and Buddha and Zeus and Poseidon and even six pounds, seven ounce baby Jesus. It's like, it's like we're going to pray. We're going to pray for everybody, all the bases. But, but even though they are all praying, the situation just keeps getting even more tempestuous with each moment, the wave after wave, bigger and bigger. So verse seven, we read, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Friends, this means they are out of options. No God is answering them. So they start looking at one another and they start wondering, who is it in this place that has offended a God? Is it you? You? Is it me? Is it who? who is it? So even though the situation is getting more and more tempestuous, verse seven, they said, let's cast lots. I mean, oh, count, this evil has come upon us. So they start throwing, casting the lots we see the end of verse seven, we see that the lot falls on Jonah. So just as you'd imagine, lots like this, they, they were used throughout history to discern the will of God on various things. They're, they're probably a lot like dice, maybe, that we would use for board games or things like that. But the crazy thing that we see unfold here is that God's sovereignty extends to even these pagan men casting lots in their pagan divination. So that the throw of the dice, even God oversees, as we see in the book of Proverbs. He is sovereign over the wind, the waves, and the ship. And he is sovereign over the casting of lots. For the lot falls on Jonah. And Jonah is just exposed before everybody. These men are probably drenched, right? They're probably freezing, shivering cold. Wave after wave coming upon them and knocking the boat. The boat's threatening to break apart. You're throwing everything overboard. You're crying out to your gods. You throw the dice. It falls on this man who came on board in Joppa. So drenched to the bone and probably shivering and tired, they start peppering Jonah with questions to find out how to appease this God who is blasting them with a storm. So verse eight, they say, tell us on who it's account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And in essence, they're trying to find out how to appease the God who is in control over this storm. So they look at him and say, come clean, man. What have you done? What have you done? So Jonah, singled out by the God that who he, he is running from, opens his mouth and answers their questions. Now, keep in mind, this is the very first time that Jonah speaks in this entire book. He has said nothing up until now. And he opens his mouth and he says to them, I am a Hebrew which is the common way that Jews would identify themselves to Gentiles. He says, and I fear the Lord. Now, let's stop there for a moment. That's an interesting statement for our boy Jonah to make, is it not? I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Do you? Do you really? No, but do you really? Right, like, we're left wondering, like, does he, does he fear the Lord? Does his actions prove he fears the Lord? What a funny thing to say. You're in the middle of this crazy storm. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Oh, do you mean the Lord who's throwing this storm at us? I mean, you fear him, right? Like probably lots of snarky questions with these sailors on board. He claims his identity is Hebrew when he fears the Lord. And then he says, who is, this is how he identifies the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And at that simple pronouncement of who he is and which God he fears, that this is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. We see that these men go from being afraid in verse five to being exceedingly afraid in verse 10. <laughs> More literally, they fear with a great fear simply at the mention of the name of Yahweh. 
And more than likely, the stories they've heard about God and, and these Hebrew people, in response to this, they look at Jonah and they say to him, what is this that you have done? Notice as well that our English translators here don't use a question mark. They use an exclamation mark, and they're doing that on purpose. Now, if you're a homeschool parent, or if you've ever taught someone ESL, you might be looking at this and you're like, why is there not a question mark here? There should be a question mark. You might have your kids. Why is there a question mark here? Well, the reason there isn't a question mark is because this is not a question at all. It's kind of like when someone breaks something that you love and you see it broken on the floor and you walk in and you say, what have you done? Right, like you're not asking, there's no question there. Uh, it's, a, it's a very emphatic, uh, not very nice way of poking at you, saying you're in trouble, Bubba. The same is true here. Why, why have you put us in this situation? Jonah, this is your fault. It's because you've sinned against the God who created all things, the one who the sea was created by. And we can tell from the end of verse 10 that there's a bit of dialogue that we don't have recorded for us here because we read the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So this is, they have some conversation. We don't know what it is, but, but we get the gist of it. Notice as well, this is the third time that we've seen this phrase. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And, and they know this because he told it to them. And, and I, wonder, I wonder everything that he said. This is shorthand enough for the men who are trying to find out how to appease God's wrath. It's enough for them to know how to begin ending this disaster. So wondering, okay, is this God? So, so then they ask in verse 11, a very natural question that comes right out of that. So what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And then we see this line, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Like it was bad. Now it's even worse. Things just keep getting worse. And Jonah responds, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, this seems strange, doesn't it? Jonah knows all this is happening because of him. But do you ever think, why is this his solution? Throw me overboard. What? <laughs> Where does that come from? Like Jonah could have fallen on his knees and repented. He could have said, guys, 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 turn the ship around, start heading back to Joppa. I'll get off. And then I'll go to Nineveh and then just double back. Keep going. You'll be fine. Could have done that. But no, his response is throw me overboard, which would have mean, wouldn't it? Certain death. Like you, you would have died. In the middle of the sea, you, you would have died. Now, now, Jonah has received no word from the Lord, as far as we know, that his death is somehow required for the storm to settle down. So maybe Jonah either thinks that God wants him dead, or maybe, maybe Jonah would rather die than do what God is calling him to do and go into Nineveh. Maybe the waters of God's judgment he wants more than to go and do what God tells him to do. We aren't sure. We're not told. All we know is that Jonah says, hurl me into the sea. Don't hurl the cargo. Hurl me. Then we see in verse 3 that the men don't listen to Jonah. They're like, okay, not doing that plan. And they come up with their own plan. We're just going to do what we want. They want Jonah to live, but to no avail. The sea even grows more and more tempestuous still. So the mariners, they do something interesting. They call out to the Lord. They say, oh, Lord. Now, friends, this is the word Yahweh. This is 
the covenant name of God that these mariners are taking upon their lips. They had been calling out to their worthless idols, their false gods. Now they take the name of Yahweh onto their lips and they pray to him. Isn't that fascinating? And, and they say, oh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. Friends, it is astounding enough that they take the name of Yahweh onto their lips, but doing so and pleading for mercy for doing what the prophet told them to do is even more astounding. They, they say, Yahweh, don't let us perish. Don't let us die. Don't kill us for doing what this man tells us. Don't lay on us innocent blood. See how ironic this is? The pagan polytheists are praying to Yahweh and pleading with him for mercy and pardon. But we don't see one instance of Jonah praying to the Lord. Whew. In fact, this is one of the only kind of prayers that we have in the entire Bible like this. Prayers like this towards Yahweh are not common in the Old Testament. Not only this, but it's incredibly humiliating when you would compare them to the way that Jonah is responding. Remember, they are pagan Gentiles, and they are doing what the prophet is not doing. And it's even more astounding if we consider the trajectory of the story. Remember, at the beginning of the story, they're afraid when they see the storm, right? So they call it to their false gods. But as the story progresses, the storm gets more and more tumultuous, and then they hear of Yahweh and the strength of his might. And the story ends with them pleading for mercy through prayer and also saying in their prayer this phrase, you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. See that phrase? Now, if you were to search the scriptures, one commentator pointed out, you'd find this exact phrase is only used three other times in the New Old Testament. Only three. And in every single time it's mentioned about how false gods are useless and only the Lord answers prayer. It is a striking phrase for these mariners to be using. Yet at this point in the story, we need to simply pause and ask the question that, that we probably don't ask when reading the story. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or read it with a child, but have you ever thought about why Jonah insists that it's the responsibility of the mariners to throw him overboard? Isn't that strange? Like, why can't Jonah just jump overboard himself? Like, don't worry, guys, I got this. That's what happens in Veggie Tales. Walks the plank. Yay! Right, right? This, what it said, Jonah says, no, no, you have to hurl me. Like, like in the same way that like your little brother at the lake, right? Like someone's got his hands, someone's got his feet, and woo, like hurl me over. So Jonah insists they have to do it. Why is he laying the responsibility to do that on these men? Have you ever wondered when you're reading this story? Why not do it himself? Quite frankly, that's one of the questions we don't have answered, but, but it is strange. We see in verse 15 that the sailors, when faced with the waves and the storms, that just keeps getting worse. They do exactly what Jonah tells them to. They pick him up and they hurl him into the sea. And, and man, this story doesn't, it, 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 just, it just ends so backwards from how Jonah probably thought this whole thing was gonna go down. You know what I mean? When he's walking to Joppa, buying the fare, 
getting on the boat, heading out in the sunset. Man, I'm getting away. This is great. He's not thinking that right now. You know what I mean? Life is, life is flipped, turned upside down. It, it's, it's wild, man. He, he thought maybe at the end of this day, or in a couple of months from now, probably, he'd be sitting on, on the beaches of Tarshish, having some Mai Tais, enjoying this world. And, and, and yet, and yet, no. It's not how things end up. Rather, this is where his disobedience ends. He's found out. He's hurled overboard. And now the waters of God's judgment are just closing in upon him. And he's sinking like a stone. It's astounding, astounding to see the consequences of his sin that he just never could see coming. And just as Jonah told the sailors, it happens. So we see in the second half of verse 15, so that when they threw him into the sea, the sea ceased from its raging. And then the scene shifts back to the sailors and the impact on the entire event on their lives. For in that moment, seeing the calm waters, they knew that the Lord Yahweh is the one who rules the sea and the dry land and that he alone should be feared. And in response, we read that they feared the Lord exceedingly, meaning that they feared him with a great fear. So much so that they offered a sacrifice. They sacrificed sacrifices. This is literally what the Hebrew says. And then they vowed vows. They, they made vows. And here's where the, some debate among the scholars comes up that I want you to be aware of because it's interesting. Because we're unsure of whether these men sacrificed these sacrifices and vowed these vows right here on the boat. Or maybe they did this when they got to Tarshish. Or, or maybe the, the leaning of the text means that they actually went to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the court of the Gentiles, where sacrifices and vows are made to the Lord and did it there. Now, again, while we don't know the answer to that question, we can simply note here at the end of our section today is that everything seems a bit backwards from the normal storylines that we see in the Old Testament. You know what I mean? This is like the bizarro world of the Old Testament. You're like, what is happening? I mean, we have a shockingly disobedient Jewish prophet who is trying to run from the presence of the Lord. And we have pagan Gentile sailors offering sacrifices and making vows to Yahweh. That thus Jonah chapter one is this huge reversal, which is a major theme that we're gonna see unfold again in this book on a much bigger scale in chapters three and four. And so that's where our study for today will end. Now, if you're looking at your Bible and you say, Aaron, there is verse 17 in chapter one. Why are you not going there today? Well, it's because chapter verses, chapters and verses weren't introduced until 500 years ago. And there is a debate on whether or not verse 17 belongs in chapter one or chapter two. And I think it belongs in chapter two. So next week, uh, we'll start in verse 17 and then dive into chapter two. So before we end our time though, I would really wanna recap a little bit about what we learned about God and about us and ultimately how this book points us and our hearts to Jesus. And I borrowed some of the journal outline of this from a friend of mine because it was helpful and concise. So if there's anything good here, it's him. If anything bad, that's me, so. What do we learn about God from Jonah chapter one? Well, firstly, we learn that God's word is authoritative. It is able to be trusted and it's true. Right, the story starts with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah and everything in the story hinges on what Jonah does when he hears God's word. Does he respond in faith and obedience or does he run away from it? Which is a great question for us to mull over as well in our own lives. We consider who God has called in our lives. Second, God is absolutely sovereign over everything. Every human heart, every roll of the dice, over all of creation. And everything is bending to accomplish his purposes. 
even if it doesn't look at it like it as it's coming right out of the gate. Even in this situation with the mariners, all of that is part and parcel of the purposes of God in making his name known among the farthest reaches of the earth. It's places where God's fame and his glory have not been made known as these men will head to Tarshish. And have they got a story to tell at the pub that night? It's crazy. See, friends, we don't live in a world that is governed by natural causes, rather by a supernatural creator. He's the one who stores up lightning and snow and wind in his barns, and he brings them forth when he desires. He's the one who notices that the earth is dry, and he tips over water buckets in heaven to water the earth. He is sovereign over everything. Thirdly, God's wrath, his judgment is real. There's evil among the Ninevites that deserves judgment. That's what starts this entire story. Their sin comes up to God, and so God wants them to know about his oncoming judgment against their sin, which reminds us as well of the consequences of sin in all of our lives. See, friends, God sees our hearts and even the secret sins in our lives, and the wages of these sins is death. Physical death, that's why we die here on the earth, and also eternal death, judgment in the life to come where we will suffer under the many sins that we have done. God's wrath is real, and there's coming a day when all of our sin, your sin, my sin, will be judged before him. Fourth, God's mercy is relentless and incredible. Friends, God did not have to send Jonah to the Ninevites. He could have treated them like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Did they get a prophet sent into them to warn them of judgment? No. They had a prophet. No one listened to him. Lot, but only Lot and his family was saved. No message came to them warning all of Sodom and Gomorrah to repent of their sin. Friends, God could have let the Ninevites just come under his judgment. Or he could have just let Jonah go off into the sunset. But he doesn't. He is the Lord who pursues the Ninevites, the mariners, and even Jonah's heart as he is being faithless. So this is what we learn about God from these. Probably more than that, but that's a couple of things. And then by way of applying the text into our lives as God's people, how would we begin to do that? And there are many ways, but one of the first things I want us to do, point out from this book, is that it begins with God giving a very specific assignment to Jonah that begins the entire scenario. It, this call to go to the enemies, to preach, to call out their evil. And so I simply want us to note that as Jonah experienced a very specific call on his life by God, friends, members of the trails, that God still issues calls upon our lives to use them according to what he demands of you. He still issues calls upon our lives to use our lives according to what he demands us. As Christians, we all have the great commission and God's word tells us how we ought to live as God's people, yes and amen, but there are also specific assignments that God still calls men and women towards as we leverage our lives for the sake of his kingdom. So very practically for us, we have 16 people who are headed to Calgary in the next couple of months, many of whom are there even today as they're on a trip looking for apartments and homes, new jobs and careers, because God has specifically called them to leave everything behind to go where he is calling them to go. And, and though they might have wrestled with this in various ways, they are leaving everything behind. Their families, their businesses, their homes, their security, everything. 
Why? So they might join with this Calgary church plant for a season of their lives. Maybe for their whole lives, maybe a couple of months or years, but regardless of that, they're stepping out into the unknown of this journey of church planting because God has issued a call onto their lives to go. And they are being obedient to that. So we're praying that in the years ahead, this will be just the start of what God does in our church as we will, Lord willing, send out many church plants across Winnipeg and across our nation and even internationally so that the over 3 billion people of the world today who have zero access to the gospel those who have never once heard the name of Jesus, who will be born, live their whole lives and die never hearing the name of Jesus so that they might know of God's oncoming judgment of sin, that they might repent and believe upon Jesus because he is the only mediator between God and men and he's the only way to the Father. And God might call you to do that. Kids, God might call you to do that. He might call my kids. He might call your kids. Parents, are you, are you ready to encourage your kids in that? Knowing you would never see your grandkids? Knowing that they might be murdered for their faith? Are those kids yours to begin with? So as Christians, we recognize that God calls all of us to lay down the blank check of our lives, to let God fill out for us wherever he would have us to go. Friends, we don't give the marching orders, we follow them. He is the one who issues calls on our lives to do things that we would never naturally do. He's the one that perseveres us in that call. Now, I wanna make one other observation, and it's this, that not all of the calls of God on our life are easy. They're not all wrapped up in pleasure and open doors. You ever heard that phrase? I just had all these open doors. Prone to think that if doors just keep opening around us, it must be God's will for our life, right? I mean, so much of Christian philosophizing here in Canada is just look for open doors. What, what doors is God opening around you? Or oh, I just kept having open doors. So I just kept walking through them. Friends, we equate open doors to God's will for our life. And while the sentiment sounds nice and spiritual, is it actually true? What open doors did Jonah have? The way to Joppa, there was no car wrecks. I just walked all the way there. I got there, I had the money. There was a ship, open door. Here I go. The Lord is provided. Well, he has, but not in the way you're thinking, Bubba. Here comes the storm. See, sometimes we get called by God and we have to beat down doors to do something that God is calling us to do. It takes a lot of dying to yourself to fulfill the call of God on your life. It's costly to do what scripture calls you to do. If you wanna go as an international missionary, it's costly to learn a new language. That's costly. It's hard work. It's not easy. I mean, all we need to do is look at the scriptures as well to see this is true. Was it easy for Moses? Was it easy for Joshua? Easy for Abraham? Easy for Jesus? Wasn't it rather costly? See, God's will rare, rarely gets revealed when it is wrapped up with just leisure and ease and seemingly open doors. Sometimes maybe, but not 
It's not the guarantee. It's like when we moved here to plant this church. Six months beforehand, the main pastor of the church that supported our church and was the one who really mentored me and helped me prepare to be sent out of that church, he resigned from that church. And the new pastor showed zero interest in helping us plant a church in Winnipeg. I mean, zero. Then the next month, the missions network that we were gonna be planted with died. C to C, right out of the blue. That same month, we were told by the denomination that we were gonna be planting with that it would be better fit if we partnered with a different network of churches because our stance on the Bible being inerrant was not something that they really wanted in their network. So in two months, we lost our sending church that was supposed to be supporting us and planting as well. We lost our church planting network and we lost denominational support. And yet, as God always does, he provided anyway. Then when we moved here and started gathering for Bible studies, we did so in February, 2020, only to have COVID happen. And we had to meet in secret for the next two years at various times and in various capacities. It looked as if one door was closing upon another, but we knew that God had called us here. So no amount of closed doors would get in our way. And I think about all the opportunities that, that I had to throw in the towel and give up. Easy, open doors that I could have said, well, the Lord opened a door. Praise God. Get out of crazy Canada. And, and yet I look around our church and I hear stories of God's grace in your life. I see lives have been transformed by the gospel. I see people we have baptized. Was it the will of God? Yes and amen. Was it the call of God? Yes and amen. Was it easy? No, it was not. Is it easy? No. And yet, praise God. Friends, don't look for open doors. Rather, look for where God has called you to go or to be and tear down doors if necessary to get there. One last application for us, and it's this, that we are all, because of the fall, inclined to do what Jonah did, to hear the word of the Lord and to run. Some of us attempt to run in a couple of different ways. Some by choosing to go elsewhere. This happens in Winnipeg all the time. People run away to a different city. You know what I mean? They, they want to run away from who God has called them to be and their upbringing, so they, they run away for a couple of years. Or maybe they run away to a different church or a different friend group to be somebody else. They want to get away from everyone who knows them, thinking that no one will see and no one knows, so you can be who you really always wanted to be. Or we can run from God by, uh, by emotionally or mentally just checking out, by disengaging from others or refusing to connect with others so that we aren't actually known by anyone at church. So we put on masks when we're around one another and we run from being known and having other people speak into our lives. Thirdly, practically, we might run from God by not coming to church gatherings at all, thinking if we stop coming here to this gathering, that God doesn't have the means to speak into your life. Friend, he does. So, so don't run from the presence of God. Quite honestly, some of us also run from God by staying in the church. We just wrap ourselves in good works and looking good while ignoring the ultimate call of God to repent and believe upon Jesus. So when you're tempted to run, to disobey, to sin, thinking it's easier or better or more convenient, remember, remember that Jonah thought that Tarshish was gonna be best. But it led him, this downward spiral that, that brought upon the discipline of the Lord into his life. And it will do the same in yours. Last thing I want us to consider together is how does this chapter point our hearts to Jesus? And then I'm done, I promise. I'm gonna give you four ways. 
There are probably other ones you could think about. You're smarter than me, but here's the only four I can think of. First, whereas we see Jonah hear the word of the Lord, and he goes in the opposite direction to run from the presence of the Lord, try to. Praise be to God that Jesus, our Lord, took on flesh and bone and stepped into time as the true and better word of the Lord. And he was faithful and obedient to speak and do all that the Father called him to do. Thus, Jonah is a sinner who tried to run from God, whereas Jesus is God in the flesh who comes after sinners. Second, when we see Jonah sleeping on a boat in the middle of a storm, being awakened and asked for help, don't our minds just immediately flash to Mark chapter four? Remembering how Jesus also slept on a boat and was awakened because of a tumultuous storm. And yet he, the Lord of creation, stood and rebuked the winds and the waves as only God can, which leads to a great fear arising into the hearts of the disciples as they say to one another, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, just as the seas obeyed the commands of God in the book of Jonah, we see Jesus's divinity on display and his ability to command the wind and the sea and to do his bidding in the New Testament. Thirdly, this is a little one as well. It's interesting to simply note that these pagan mariners, it's interesting to note they sought to save Jonah's life. They didn't want to kill him. And they ask God for mercy. And isn't that the same thing that we see in Jesus's life as Pilate sought to do the same? He, a pagan polytheist, he tried to release Jesus because he found no guilt in him for Jesus is the only truly innocent man. And when Pilate learns what Jesus says about himself, he enters into the scene as well of peppering Jesus with a whole lot of questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? What is true? And then eventually he washes his hands of the situation, seeing he doesn't want Jesus's blood to be on his hands. And then lastly, we saw how Jonah was thrown into the sea of God's judgment as a result of his own sin. And the waters of, of God's judgment just overwhelmed him as he rightly deserved, which is a great picture of what we deserve and, and how this is such a contrast to what we see in Jesus's life. As he, the only truly innocent one, the only one who deserved heaven for our sake, the sake of our salvation, he faced the tsunami of God's judgment against our sin as his body was beaten and broken and hung on a tree until he died for the sins of his people. And then his body was placed into the ground until he would be raised from the dead. So those are four small examples of how deep and wonderful the story of Jonah is. And so I'm pumped to spend the next couple of weeks just diving into this book together as a church family. So as, as small groups are beginning to kind of wind down and we're, we're headed into more of kind of a, a summer rhythm until we launch them back officially in the fall, what I want to encourage you to do is just be really super extra attentive. That's a lot of words. Really super extra attentive in your schedule of inviting some folks over for supper or coffee. And as you do, talk about some of these things that we're studying and learning as a church. Talk about the book of Jonah, what you learned, what you're studying, what you're seeing, and encourage one another in the Lord. So let's pray. So Father, I want to thank you for this book and thank you for the way that you use it in our lives. I pray, God, that in our church, as we continue to study and to know your word better and better every week, as we meditate upon it, as we spend time opening and, and diving in, but both here and then in, in our own personal study and with conversations with others, God, we pray that you would use this book mightily in our lives, that you might continue to make us into and, and sharpen us and... Allow us to love you even more and more and more and greater and greater. Pray, God, for us um, in our study of it as well, that we would 
we would see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus in the text. And we're thankful, God, for all that you give us in and through Jesus. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness that is extended to us through Jesus. Thank you for loving us and taking upon yourself the waters of judgment that we might be saved. We love you and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.